0: Good morning. morning. In my senior year of high school, I took a film class where we watched a bunch of films from different eras. One of the films we watched in that class was a movie called The Shawshank Redemption. The movie primarily takes place within the walls of a prison and explores the theme of hope in different contexts. The story, based on a Stephen King novel, is about a man, Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, He's accused of brutally murdering his wife and her lover and is sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. And he serves as an outsider through which the audience can observe prison life. And despite his situation and the crimes of which he's been convicted, Andy is hopeful as he maintains his innocence that he will one day see freedom. And this attitude, this view serves as a stark contrast against his other inmates who have accepted their fate as prisoners for the rest of their lives. In fact, in the movie, Andy Dufresne befriends another inmate, Red, played by Morgan Freeman, who echoes the sentiment of the other inmates. He says, let me tell you something, my friend. not going to do the voice. Uh, (laughs) Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You'd better get used to that idea. And I remember our teacher, Mr. Macklin, taking that quote and asking the class to debate it. Is hope a good thing? Is hope a bad thing? Inevitably, the conversation veered into religion. Religion is about hope. Religion is nothing without hope. And this hope has done some good in the world. But this hope has also done some bad in the world. So is hope good or is hope bad? Our passage this morning is when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. Mark 14, Our Father in Heaven, we want to thank you for establishing your church. We want to thank you for providing from front to end our salvation, but also uh, a continued nourishment of our salvation. And I just ask that you would allow us to see you for who you are, a loving God, a Savior who prepares a table for his people. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. As we make our way through these four verses, I want you to consider two things. Just two things this morning. First, the host. And second, the meal. The host and the meal. First, the host. The host of this dinner is Jesus. Specifically, he's the host in three distinct ways. First, Jesus is the host of the Passover dinner with his disciples this evening. The room that Jesus is in with his disciples is a borrowed room, but Jesus supplied it. In Mark chapter 14, verse 12, the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, where they should observe the Passover meal, which was obviously one of the most important practices of their Jewish faith. And Jesus sends the disciples into the city to find a man carrying a pitcher of water, which would have been an uncommon thing to see. And Jesus tells them to follow that man home. And when they get to that home, Jesus tells the disciples to ask the owner of that home where Jesus can eat the Passover meal with his disciples whereupon the disciples will be led to an upper guest room already furnished for them, already prepared for them. The disciples follow the orders, and there they prepare the Passover meal. So while not their room, Jesus prophetically and providentially prepares for them this place. So Jesus is the host of this specific Passover meal on this particular evening. Jesus is also the host of the Passover meal of every Passover meal that there ever was in general. See, the Passover meal took place as the final meal for the Israelites before they were freed from slavery in Egypt. What God did up until that point was to destroy every enemy god of Egypt by sending plague after plague. And the final plague was to kill every firstborn son in every Egyptian household. But before God did that, he instituted a meal. He sat the Israelites down in their own respective homes to eat. And this meal was meant to be an annual tradition to remind the people of God of this night. And each component of the meal told the story of this epic evening. For example, they ate bitter herbs to symbolize the bitterness of living in captivity in Egypt. The unleavened bread that they ate was meant to show the haste with which they were to leave Egypt instead of waiting for the leaven or the yeast to rise in order to make their bread. And of course, the lamb. The lamb was meant to be eaten with no waste. But the blood of the lamb, after it was slaughtered, was used to paint the doorposts of the house so that the angel of death would see the blood and pass over it. And if there was no blood on the doorposts, which the Egyptians would not have had on their homes, the angel of death would kill the firstborn son of that household. And this is the gospel. The Israelites did not escape the angel of death simply because the angel of death looked the other way. The angel of death did not ignore the homes of the Israelites and solely target the homes of the Egyptians. He didn't just stay in a single zip code. The fact that the angel of death still passed over the homes of the Israelites showed that the Israelites still deserved the same wrath executed against the Egyptians. But the difference is that there was a sacrifice that was made. The blood of the lamb showed that something had already died as a substitute first for the firstborn son of that home. The Egyptians had no substitute, and therefore the life of the firstborn son was taken. And for every man and for every woman, we stand guilty as rebels against the creator of this world. Each and every one of us broke the laws of God's commands, and no blood of any animal could permanently take our place of judgment of sin. But Jesus Christ came as one who is greater than us, as one who is more worthy than us, as one far greater than any lamb or other animal, and yet died in our place, died as our substitute that the wrath of God might pass over our sins. This is what it means to be saved by the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 tells us that Christ was put forward as a propitiation, a propitiation, look back to Ed's sermon a few weeks ago if you forgot, a propitiation as a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The entire Passover meal was meant to commemorate God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And this entire moment, the most important moment of the history of the Jewish people points to Jesus, Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus is the one who delivers Israel from Egypt. Jesus is the one who brought Israel out of slavery. Jesus is both the angel of death and the Passover lamb. All of Passover points to Jesus. So, the host of the Passover meal, of all Passover meals, is Jesus. Finally, Jesus is the host in that he establishes a new covenant a new meal for the people of this new covenant to observe. Mark 14, 22 in our text today. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. So Jesus interrupts the most important meal of the Jewish people and makes it all about him. The Passover meal ultimately pointed to Jesus. And now Jesus establishes a new meal to make it more clearly, contextually about him. So the Lord's Supper, therefore, is not the Passover meal. While it finds its roots in the Passover meal, while it is yet another meal that God institutes, it is meant to be a new meal by which only members of the new covenant are meant to partake. That which is meant to proceed from this point on in history is the Lord's Supper. So this is the last Passover meal in Mark 14 that we read of, but also the first Lord's Supper. And Jesus is the unmistakable host here. And from here, I want you to consider the situation that this host, Jesus, is in as he establishes the Lord's Supper. And the reason I want you to consider this is because we learn the most about a person when we see how the person behaves and acts and responds to specific situations. More than what a person says, more than where a person is from, more than what other people say about a person, more than the person's past, we learn most about the character and the heart and the mind and the beliefs about a person when we witness how that person acts and responds to different scenarios. I was with the CEO of the company I work at at an event recently. In a previous life, he was a senior ranking officer in the military, and he'd also been an executive at another large publicly traded company prior to founding and leading our current company. So he's worked with many different secular leaders throughout his career. And at that event, someone asked him, how do you know that you have the right executives in your company? How do you know you have the right leaders working for you? Without blinking, without hesitation, he responded, stress the system, stress the system. Leave hard, difficult situations to the other executives and see who rises and who falls. A little bit Darwinian. See who can figure it out and who loses the trust of their team. Stress the system. See, actions speak louder than words, and it's no different here in our text. Our host, we've established, is Jesus Christ. And our text today, when Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, is sandwiched between two other stories that set the context for this meal. Honestly, no pun intended. Mark chapter fourteen, verse seventeen to twenty one, before our text. And when it was evening he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into this dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And after the meal, we start reading from verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. The Lord's Supper is bookended by predictions of betrayal. Jesus announces that one of the twelve will turn him in. Jesus knows that it's Judas. We, in retrospect, reading this now, know that it's Judas. Judas, who walked with him, slept beside him, laughed with him, spoke with him, cried with him. Judas, who witnessed the miracles and sermons and ministry of Jesus Christ for three years. Judas, who was in the intimate inner circle of the twelve disciples, who saw more of the compassion and acts of Jesus with his own two eyes than any of Christ's followers were able to write down in ink on paper. Judas would be the one to turn him into the hands of his killers in just a few hours. And Jesus, knowing this, but also knowing the torture and the death that awaited him because of this very betrayal, sits down and hosts this meal. Jesus also knows very well that he will be deserted and alone when he is betrayed by Judas. He knows that the other 12 will see Jesus being delivered into the hands of the chief priests in just a few hours and scatter. They will run from him. They will leave him to suffer by himself. They, too, will betray him. And yet, Jesus still serves as host. He is worried. He is stressed. He is in anguish at the thought. Jesus confesses, confesses this in verse 34. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Many of you already know this account. Luke 22 tells us that he was in agony, that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He would be flogged. He would be disfigured. He would be crucified, slowly being suffocated to death. He would face the eye of the storm of God's wrath by himself, deserted and betrayed. And yet, Jesus still serves as host. He is teaching. He is distributing the elements. He is establishing his church. His mind is focused on the love he has for those who will desert him because it is for these very fickle, cowardly disciples, fickle and cowardly like you and like me, that he would lay his life down of his own accord in order that we might know the love of God. Church, I want you to see Jesus as a wonderful host who loves those he invites to his table. Which leads us to the second thing for us to consider, the meal, the meal of this dinner, of this supper. Verse 22 again, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank out of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So we have two elements that constitute the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, both of which represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, respectively. These are necessary requirements of any covenant. In any and every covenant between God and man, there's a sacrifice that must be made, whether it's the Abrahamic covenant, which we learned this summer through Pastor Garrett Connor, or the Mosaic covenant, which we learned about basically the past two years through Pastor Ed in Hebrews and Romans, a sacrifice was always made to establish a covenant. And here in this new and final covenant, the sacrifice is not an animal, it's Jesus. So the host, Jesus, is not just a host, but also the meal. Take, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He is the substance of our faith. He is a sustenance that gives us life. And mind you, this isn't the first time that Jesus says this. You remember in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 by multiplying loaves of bread and fish. And a sermon that accompanies this miracle is when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Shortly after Jesus says this, some of his disciples respond, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Later on, we'll read that some disciples left because of this very teaching. And for thousands of years, the church debated what exactly this hard saying meant, both in the context of John 6, which is known as the Bread of Life Discourse, and in the institution of the Lord's Supper which we're talking about this, this morning. I'm not sure that Jesus necessarily was thinking of the Lord's Supper when he was speaking in John 6, and I don't think Jesus was thinking about John 6 when he distributed the elements in the Lord's Supper, but I also don't think they necessarily contradict each other. Allow me to explain. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, believes in something called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. This means that the substance of the elements, the bread and the cup, become the literal flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ. So when the priest speaks over the elements, they miraculously transform. The elements miraculously transform are transubstantiated into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So that when the participants eat of it, they receive saving grace. The danger of this doctrine I'm not trying to be mean, but why we would go so far as to call this doctrine of transubstantiation demonic with a clear conscience is that transubstantiation teaches a re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ every time it is observed. At every mass, Christ is offered up so that the church could receive saving grace. Romans chapter 6 verse 10 says otherwise, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. First Peter chapter three verse eighteen: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus Himself said this on the cross in John chapter nineteen thirty, when He declares, "It is finished," and He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. And if that's not enough, Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty six or twenty eight: For then He, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ died once for all, and it was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. The cross is bare. It is empty. He does not suffer on that cross anymore. He lives today reigning victoriously, and not as one who continues to suffer for our sins. The second view, the second dominant view, the Lutheran view, the view attributed to Martin Luther and his followers, is what is called consubstantiation. Effectively, the bread and the cup remain the bread and the cup. They don't transform into anything else. But instead of trans, instead of transforming, it's con or with. So with the elements, alongside the elements, are the literal body and blood of Christ. So like the Roman Catholics, the Lutherans believe in the literal translation that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant this is my body. Only Luther and his followers maintain that while there's no sudden transformation of matter that happens within these elements, the bread tastes like bread and the drink tastes like the original drink, the substance of the flesh and the blood remain present in the elements. The problem with this doctrine is that we believe that Jesus Christ came in both flesh but he remained God. He was fully man and fully God. He had flesh like us, like you, like me. And for his flesh to be physically present in more places than one is counter to the idea of the hypostatic union. The Zwinglian view, the view attributed to Ulrich Zwingli, is that the bread and the cup are symbols of the literal body and blood of Christ. It is not on the earth. But Jesus died on earth, was raised in his physical and literal body, and ascended into heaven with that same body, and today sits at the right hand of God Almighty. They are symbols to remind us of Christ. Most of the Reformed Church, to which North Shore Baptist Church belongs, uphold variations of this memorialist view. Some view it as strictly memorialist, some view it as memorialist, it's symbolic, but also that the Holy Spirit is present in a special way but there are variations of this view. And so, ironically, there was a division about communion within the Reformation between, specifically, predominantly Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. It's honestly a sore mark in the history of the Reformation, which was a beautiful thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones once called this dispute pathetic, because while the subject matter was important, the division between the two men of God certainly hurt the gospel. This debate culminated in Germany uh, when they were when they met to settle the matter once and for all. Today it's known as the Marburg Colloquy. And in the climax of the argument, Luther wrote in big letters, he was known for his big, dramatic personality, he wrote in big letters on the table that be, sat between the two great men of God. This is my body. His point was that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant, this is my body. John six fifty three. truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is my body, Zwingli, this is all you need to see. But Zwingli's primary argument came from the same passage, the same chapter, but in verse 63, where Jesus turns to his disciples and gives clarity to what he meant. John six sixty it is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The word that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. I think Zwingli got it right. The bread and the cup are symbols for us to understand the beautiful doctrines within the gospel that include the spiritual bondage that was broken and the spiritual victory won by Christ for us. Like baptism, which is meant to be a picture of the death of the old sinner and being raised to a new life, a new birth with Christ, the Lord's Supper uses the bread and the cup to commemorate the Lord's death and our continual nourishment through our spiritual communion with him. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he meant to do it in remembrance of him. Just as all the lambs that were slaughtered to commemorate the Passover meal year after year had no saving effect on the partakers of the meal, the bread and the cup have no saving effect for those who partake in the Lord's Supper today. The bread and the cup are meant to point to Christ. Additionally, in writing to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul takes great pains to talk to them, the Corinthian church, about how they observe the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, Paul calls them out. He says, when you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. You say you're coming together for the Lord's Supper. You announce that that's what you're doing. It's in your bulletin. It's in your program. That's what you're calling it, but it's not. Why? Because the focus is on yourselves. The focus is on your cliques and your division. You think more about yourselves than anything else, not on Christ who died to unite us all. So the elements, as long as they point to the body and the blood of Christ, are less of the issue then it is our hearts as we approach this table. Growing up, the church that I grew up in used Wonder Bread and Welch's grape juice. When I visited Ken Wells Church uh, near Udine in Italy, culturally, they used thin pieces of bread and actual wine. Here at North Shore, we use matzo crackers and generic store-bought grape juice, except during COVID when we used wafers that tasted like styrofoam and purple water. <laughs> we're back now. It's good, it's good times. I don't think any of the churches that I just said are doing wrong by the elements so long as the gospel is preached. First Corinthians chapter 11 verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the host is also the meal because in him, our host, Jesus Christ, we find our sustenance. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus is that word. He is our daily bread. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And down in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One final thing about the meal is that eating, the act of eating, is a peacetime act. You don't sit and eat and drink in the middle of war. This is why Psalm 23 is so striking. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. In the midst of darkness and trials and enemies and strife, in opposition, in the valley, God is again the host. There is no confusion. There is no interruption. There is no rush. The enemy is right there and God prepares a table. Take, eat, drink. I got this. And this is a pattern that we see throughout scripture. Notice that the Passover meal, which we discussed earlier, takes place before the actual deliverance of Israel, before the crossing of the Red Sea, before God does his greatest act of deliverance of the Israelites from evil, he sits his people down to eat. Take, eat, drink. Notice also that the Lord's Supper is accentuated when it is bookended between mentions of impending betrayal. Notice that the Lord's Supper is before God's greatest act of deliverance of all mankind from sin. He sits his people down to eat as host. Take, eat, drink. And notice our text this morning in Mark 14, verse 23. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, verse 25, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is that day? What is he talking about? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 starting from verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, And his bride has made herself ready. His bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This marriage supper is the final meal that happens, guess what? before Christ Jesus comes on a white horse with a sword in his hand to completely destroy Satan and all the powers of sin and death fully and finally, once and for all. Before this epic final battle to this war that's been raging on since time began, God sits down his church and says, Take, eat, drink. God declares war on Egypt, and then before the final battle, he tells his people to eat. God declares war on death. Judas is about to betray Christ and Jesus is about to suffer the full wrath of God and Jesus tells his disciples to take, eat, drink. God declares war on Satan and then before the final battle, he holds a wedding feast. Take, eat, drink. In the middle of wartime, God already establishes a peacetime ordinance for his people because if Christ is our God, We can be certain of victory. You sit, you eat, you watch. Our God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And church, if you can't find comfort in that, I do not know what will. A few points of application for us as we close and partake in the Lord's Supper. First, the Lord's Supper is for the church, his church. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul makes several assumptions that the church of Corinth knows that the Lord's Supper is for the churches, for believers. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, and then verse 33, he says, so then my brothers, my fellow believers, uh, my brothers, when you come together, and then he gives instruction. And the way that the church acknowledges those who belong to them to the church is through baptism and membership this is the only way christians throughout the centuries have been held accountable to one another for the church to operate biblically the way that bobby bobby jameson from capitol hill baptist puts it is that christians have to make a vow through baptism before you can renew that vow through the lord's supper and therefore this morning if you are not a believer who has been baptized by immersion If you are not a member or a new member candidate in good standing of a local Bible-believing church, we ask that you not participate this morning. In fact, if you do not believe, if you choose not to become a member of a local Bible-believing church, it is our sincere prayer that our observance of the Lord's Supper convicts you of your need for Christ, that you might know that you are not right with God, that because of your sin, you are not invited to sit at the Lord's table, that you are running to hell, and it is not okay for you to continue running that way. It is our sincere prayer that you repent and cry out to Christ for salvation. It is our sincere prayer that you commit yourself to Christ who gave his life for you and to his body, his church. The second point of application is that if there's any unrepentant sin in your life, Please refrain from the Lord's table. Do not partake. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Apostle Paul, who's writing this, calls us to self-reflection. The table which again we're about to partake in, is meant to be a table for those who understand the cost of their sins, the body and the blood of Christ Jesus who is God. For one to live in unrepentant sin and to partake in this ordinance is to have a flippant view of the cross. Paul calls this a literal life and death situation. We continue in verse 29, First Corinthians chapter 11. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But we, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Those in the Corinthian church who approached the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner were afflicted by God in order to draw them to repentance. So if there's any unrepentant sin in your life, please refrain from approaching the table this morning. This also includes not being right with another member of the church. First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16. "The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread that one bread being Christ. Consider the implications that Paul is making. To have divisions or fractures or brokenness in our relationships with the body of Christ, that is, the church, is to have brokenness and division in our relationship with Christ. To hurt or gossip against the body of Christ, that is, the church, is to hurt or gossip against Christ himself. To have unresolved Unrepentant issues against a brother or sister of Christ is to have unresolved, unrepentant sin issues against Christ himself. Our Lord does not welcome a broken body to commune with him at his table. His body was broken that we might be united. Would no soul in this room have a cavalier attitude about the gospel today? Consider your relationship with Christ, your relationship with others, And consider your own heart as you approach the table. Have you crucified yourself from sin? Both the big sins, the obvious sins that Christ has died for, but also the very little sins that you may chalk up to a personality quirk or a sin that you feel like you do not have to repent of. Are you living in the evidences of his grace? Third and final point of application, rejoice, rejoice. While we should be serious based on the context of the Lord's Supper and when it was instituted and the price that was paid for us to observe it through the death of our Savior Christ Jesus, we ought to, at the same time, rejoice. The Christian needs to examine his heart with a prayerful and honest lens. The Christian needs to consider his life and his life together with the local body of the church for which Christ laid down his life. The Christian needs to consider the gospel that we were so wretched, so wretched that the only way out was God himself coming in the form of man to face every trial and temptation before being slaughtered in our place. But the Christian also needs to understand that Christ has risen, that Christ has promised he will drink from the cup once again, that there is a final day coming when Christ will be united with his church And sin will be no more. Because yeah, Christianity is about hope. But not like the hope that the world believes. Not like the hope that belongs to chance. It's the hope that comes from the finished work of Christ. Who has time and time again provided for his people sufficiently. It's a hope that was built on a victory that's already won. It's a hope of a coming kingdom that's already been purchased. It's a hope that every time you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, that you literally taste the coming of Christ getting closer and closer. It's becoming more and more of a reality every time we partake in the Lord's table. And that, to Satan, to his demons, is a very dangerous hope. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we... Thank you for this beautiful doctrine. We thank you for this beautiful ordinance. And as we partake, Lord, we, would we give you honor and glory and power, for that is what you are worthy of. Father, we ask for those who do not believe in you uh, this morning and cannot partake in the Lord's table. We ask that you would convict their hearts, convict their souls, convict them of their sin, that they might have nowhere else to go but to you, God, who gives life. Lord, we thank you once again for the Lord's Supper and we ask that the believers here would be able to look back at what Christ has done, but also look forward and give us hope for what's to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.